this is going to throw you. I think they're going to have some convictions tomorrow afternoon, but they may come down with uh, convictions on the conspiracy to commit murder and a hung jury on murder. Welcome to the global phenomenon, Surviving the Survivor, where we're all just trying to survive in a rough world. What's up, STS Nation, and welcome to another episode of Surviving the Survivor, the podcast that promises to bring you the very best guests in all of true crime. It is week six, and quite possibly the final week of the Lori Vallow Daybell trial. Uh, we've had five weeks of testimony. They took a week to pick the jury. Uh, each side has uh, told Judge Boyce that they rest, uh, rested their case, and of course today, we heard closing arguments with a one-day break on Wednesday, and uh, as we speak right now, uh, you can you can feel the nerves because the jury is deliberating. They are behind closed doors. It's quite possible we'll get some information. Uh, if anyone hears anything, since we are doing the podcast, like they reached a verdict, please let me know, uh, and I'm trying to pay attention to that as well. Of course, unless you've been living under a rock, you know it is the trial of the so-called doomsday mom, Lori Vallow, the wildly twisted story of a seemingly loving mother, a self-proclaimed devout member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, who clearly veered way off course and became involved in the deaths of as many as five people, including her own children. Now, we've got the best guest in the business, and it takes me a little bit to get through it. Someone gave me some tood the other day that I read too long an intro, and I told them to buzz off. So bear with me. Jean Fisher, she recently retired after nearly 33 years of service at the Ada County Prosecutor's Office as the Special Crimes Unit Chief. That is the same county, of course, where this trial is going on. During law school, she interned at the Prosecutor's Office before being hired directly out of law school in 1989 and then became the supervisor of the Sexual Assault Unit and has focused on these cases ever since. Tara Malek, you know the face. Uh, you know her. She's been on the show a lot. She is an Idaho licensed attorney out of Boise, practicing in state and federal court in business and commercial litigation, and has experience in both civil and criminal law. Lisa Daddio, she has been on before, uh, but not since Brian Koberger. She is a retired police lieutenant with the New Haven Police Department in Connecticut, she spent 16 years in the detective division and uh, now uh, teaches both undergraduate and graduate level courses at the University of New Haven. And finally, we've got Josh Ritter. He is the outstanding 2015 Prosecutor of the Year. Uh, he was named that by the Association of Deputy District Attorneys. He is a partner in Eldabe Ritter Trial Lawyers. But for all you guys, he hosts an awesome podcast, True Crime Daily, The Sidebar, True Crime Daily, The Sidebar. Remember, please follow us on Facebook, Insta, Twitter. I put out all the uh, showtimes at Podcast STS. You can support us at Patreon and uh, on YouTube. Uh, the merch store is open with all the links. Carm is doing a Patreon and YouTube member event on May 18th. And Carm and I will be on Court TV following this, 8 p.m. Eastern Time with Vinny Politan. Uh, now that the intro is over, and I don't have to tell anyone to buzz off, uh, Gene Fisher, uh, they are deliberating right now. You're a prosecutor in that very courthouse. Uh, what's it like once you rest your case and it's, it's out of your hands? I'm sure it's a huge sigh of relief. Um, 
for the prosecutors uh, to finally deliver this to the jury. Um, they certainly went in knowing exactly the message that they wanted to deliver. They stuck with their theme throughout the entire um, from opening to closing today, they stuck with, you know, the same thing of power, uh, money and sex. Um, and I think that they really highlighted that with um, and punctuated that with the evidence that they were able to bring in. Um, so I think that they, you know, I mean, they, they delivered what they said they were going to deliver. Um, and I think that, um, you know, whenever you turn a case over to the jury, there's a, there's a, obviously a huge side of relief um, and an awful lot of anticipation. Um, and, and, you know, you can't help it, but, you know, as soon as you're done, you think of all the things that you wish that you could have said or should have said, um, and, uh, and just hope that you hit all the right notes. What have, should have, could have, uh, yep. you know what, uh, Gene, I'm going to mute you. Don't worry about it. And everyone else, I think we're okay. Uh, but Tara to you, you're the flip side. I mean, you were a prosecutor, but you're a defense attorney now. So what do you think Jim Archibald is feeling now? And he didn't have much to work with. Um, we'll get into the closing arguments, but uh, they didn't present a defense. Uh, but his defense was basically Chad did it um, in closing arguments. So how do you think he's feeling right about now? Oh, I'm sure both sides are really nervous. I mean, it's it, there's a there's an immediate sense of relief when you end and you say the last word of whatever your closing argument is. And then um, much like what Jean described, you sit down and you're like, oh, shoot, I should have addressed this issue or that issue. And and hindsight is, you know, 2020 and you're operating off of a lot of adrenaline and very little sleep usually in, in these uh, types of cases and in trial. So um, I'm, I'm sure he had mixed emotions there. And the waiting is the worst part. It's just you don't know how long deliberations are going to go. Um, you know, everyone's kind of on pins and needles until they hear something. Yeah. And it could, it could again come tonight. I'm not sure what time they're deliberating until if anyone, uh, any member of STS nation knows this, please let me know. Um, Lisa Daddio, uh, we haven't had you on, on this case yet. So I'd love to just get your, um, you know, you were a detective, you covered some grisly, uh, crimes, some high profile crimes. Uh, where does this case rank in terms of the uh, just the disturbingness, if that's a word, um, of the crime itself? Because this is, is this is out there. It is. And unfortunately, um, I, we're seeing more and more of them throughout the country, to be quite honest with you, uh, that are coming to light. And so uh, from an investigative you know, investigatory side, you know, it's trying to stay focused and kind of handle one case, one victim at a time, the best that you can, and not get caught up in it. Uh, stay focused, focus on putting all the facts together. I call it like putting together a thousand piece puzzle, uh, one piece at a time, so that your case is as strong as it could be when it goes to trial. And assume that every case that you're going to investigate is going to go to trial. And if it's strong all the way throughout and, and you dot all your I's and cross all your T's and don't leave any stone, you know, kind of uncovered, then you're good to go. And then the rest is up to the attorneys, both, you know, prosecutors and the defense uh, and then obviously the jury. Mm. Uh, Wood killed it. Obviously, the prosecutor. This is from Jag. I think Lori will be toast before the end of the day. The day is still going there. By the way, it is 440 uh, local time in Boise right now. Uh, 
and it'll happen, she says, right in time for Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day to everyone except Lori Daybell. So, yeah, happy Mother's Day to everyone. Teresa here chiming in with that. Hi, STS Nation. Happy Mother's Day to all loving mothers here in chat. And to Carmela and Miss Walvin, love from me in Ireland. I wonder, is Ireland celebrate Mother's Day the same day we do? I'd be surprised if they did, but maybe they do. Uh, Josh Ritter, uh, some people, you know, forgot the char all the charges involved here and Judge Boyce, uh, before uh, he even got going today with closing arguments, uh, made these charges clear so the jury would know uh, what they are deciding on, and they are the following. Conspiracy to commit first-degree murder and grand theft by deception uh, regarding Tylee Ryan. First-degree murder for Tylee Ryan. And then the same thing, conspiracy to commit first-degree murder uh, against J.J. Vallow. First-degree murder against J.J. Vallow. And same deal with Tammy Daybell, along with a grand theft charge. Um, these are the most serious of charges. Um, You've been following the case. Uh, you know, is there enough? Everyone seems to agree that there's enough on the conspiracy right now. Do you think that they are struggling with the actual first degree murder charges? Uh, and again, we'll get into Jim Archibald. He said, look, there's no proof she killed anyone. That's what he said, minus his hair. But what say you? Yeah, I think if you're going to say that there was a a weakness in the prosecution's case. And I, I don't think there was a weakness. It wasn't, it wasn't weakness in, in what they presented. It was just what they had. Um, and sometimes you just don't have all the evidence that you wish you had. They don't have that smoking gun text message between Lori and Chad, where she says, okay, tomorrow's the day. I hope you're prepared for this. It, they would have loved something like that to kind of show this um, knowledge on her part ahead of, time and and some sort of step taken in furtherance of this entire conspiracy and murder on Lori's part ahead of time, but they simply don't have that. So they did the best with what they did. And I think they did a remarkable job with all of that. Um, but it, it, it's, you know, as her defense attorney pointed out, the, the weakness that what the defense is going to concentrate most of their efforts on is, okay, you, you've, you've shown us a lot about reasons she may have had to have done this, her motives behind this, whether that be money, whether that be a new life she wanted to lead with Chad, whether that be her fringe religious beliefs. It seems like there's a lot of reasons and a lot of things that she said to some folks that would make you believe that she had a reason to participate in this. And then there's a lot of her behavior afterwards, uh, consciousness of guilt, the way that she, you know, she's just not behaving like a person who just lost her two children um, and, and, and he's certainly behaving like someone that you could argue took part in, or at least had knowledge of their murders. But that's the whole thing is what did she know beforehand? What, what did she, it's that big question. What did she know? And when did she know it? And that was, that's really tying this whole case together for them on Lori is, was there enough to push jurors over the edge to say she knew so much about all of this that she must have known beforehand, regardless of having that smoking gun evidence, she must have known and must have taken part because of all the circumstantial evidence. And, you know, I hate to kind of leave it up to the jurors, but it is up to the jurors. Time will tell. We're going to see uh, what their verdict is. If, if, if you're asking me to predict when, I don't think we're going to get anything today. I think it was too big of a case and too much for them to go over. 
Uh, but, you know, jurors love to come back on Fridays and we're just lined up against that right now. So we'll see what happens. That's a good point. Friday is tomorrow. Uh, Friday is already here. It's in the future in Australia where some people are watching right now. Uh, old Lady Snoop is saying, Does she, should we uh, interfere with your show if we get a verdict? Yes, you should. You should let me know and jump right in. She also said she was scraping ice off of her truck last week. You got to move to Miami. And I heard it was, I read it was 42 degrees in Idaho the other day. So um, look, there is hope. Um in more southerly places. I'll leave it at that. Stephanie's saying, hello, uh, STS gang. Jimmy and Jeannie are friends of the show. Um, back to you, Lisa Daddio. Uh, you've dealt with a lot of criminals in your life. Um, Lori walked in the courtroom today. We've been reporting. Uh, today she was wearing gray, gray dress pants, a black top, a black cardigan, which, by the way, a lot of jury consultants said, don't wear black. It looks like you're mourning, but she was. Uh, she was holding a manila envelope. No one knows what was in there, and we never will, I don't think. Um, and she, at moments, was laughing on arguably uh, Judgment Day for her, uh, the biggest day of her life. But there have been a lot of moments throughout this case where she is exhibiting biz bizarre behavior. There was one day where she wanted to leave the courtroom, um, but more so when, when some very graphic autopsy and crime scene photos were shown, she's cackling a little bit in the background. Uh, what do you make of this behavior as a human observer, as a police investigator? So immediately when you mentioned the clothes that she wore today, the first thing I thought of, like you said, it was mourning, um, which is interesting. Um, you know, it's a double-edged sword kind of thing. You know, is she mourning because she knows it's going to be the last day and therefore uh, her life is in the hands of the jury? Uh, is she mourning to have some type of empathy or sympathy from the jury, you know, because of what's happening? Um, her, her bizarre behavior, we've seen actually with a lot of these horrific cases, especially when a mother uh, is involved. And, and so, you know, for me as a mom, I think immediately that like the person has lost their mind and they had to have done it. Like, I, I can't feel bad for that person. Um, I, I feel automatically like it's kind of a defensive thing, like what people do uh, when they're caught. A lot of times they'll laugh. They act inappropriately. Um, but I think that's a major turnoff for the jury. That's just, you know, my observations. And it would be a turnoff for me as an investigator as well. It's like, you're not upset that your kids are dead. You know, you're not upset that they think that you did all this. And yet, you know, you're claiming to be innocent. Um, and, and so not a good ploy, I don't think, um, as an investigator. And definitely if I was sitting on the jury, it would be a tough one for me today. Uh, Teresa writes, in my opinion, Lori Valadebel will be convicted. Uh, so question, will she be put on suicide watch first? Um, Gene Fisher, to you. Is there a kind of a standard operating procedure in Ada County, especially among high profile uh, inmates, if she was to be uh, convicted uh, today? Obviously, she wouldn't be sentenced, I don't think, right away. Uh, would they put her on suicide watch? Do you know? I don't know that there's actually a, you know, a, a set standard for anybody who gets convicted, but certainly she already comes into this with a history um, preceding, you know, her preceding these events. She, she was on a mental hold. Um, that delayed the case for a significant period of time um, and um, had to get a certain amount of 
of um, treatment for that um, so that she could be held competent. And, and those are all things that are are um, not going to escape. Uh, they're not going to escape the jury. Uh, the jury doesn't had, didn't hear any evidence about her mental illness. They were allowed to talk a little bit about religion, but of course, um, they also heard that you know religion was just used as a ploy in this instance to to commit these acts. Um, but in her particular case, yeah, I suspect that she that she would be put on a suicide watch just because of the nature of her. Uh, mental state before the trial started. Um, you know, she's not been, uh, I mean, anybody watching this and watching her um, would say that she, you know, she's not reacted to any of this in a way that anyone would would signify as typical or, um, you know, as a healthy, as a healthy person, much less a, a mother um, uh, having lost her children. So I'm sure that there'll be particular to watch that for her in this instance. And then okay. let me just meet you here. Um there is a person who's been nicknamed and, and I don't want to put you on the spot, Gene. I'm just curious if you know who this is maybe, but they nicknamed a bailiff courtroom daddy. Uh, he was given instructions to the audience today and he said today is a very big day. Thousands of man hours have been put into this case and we want to give the jury as much respect as we can. Please silence your phones. If you don't know how to silence them, turn them off. No photos or video in the courtroom. The lifesavers, and I'll tell you what that's all about, are a double-edged sword. Please open the wrappers now. Uh, Larry Woodcock was handing out lifesavers, which Lori Vallow needs a lifesaver at the moment. But um, what is, I mean, you, you kind of mentioned it, but inside the courtroom itself on a on a huge day like this, um, it's, it's being reported widely that it was a completely different environment, like a very palpable environment. Can you take us inside what, what it's like inside there? Well, I mean, it, it, it is a really big day because, you know, you're, you're finally to the end and you're going to hear the closing arguments. And there's a lot of anticipation to get there, to wrap this up and to be able to put all of this into some sort of um, concise argument for the jury and for those watching remember when this case first started and I think it was a couple of weeks into it there were questions that people were asking here even locally that felt like the prosecution was um, ping-ponging around a little bit you know they were jumping from issue to issue and bringing people in and out of context or out of sequence and and that's just to be expected given the nature of the case the fact that they had to bring in witnesses from many different states um, and there had been considerable delay and they're working around different schedules um, and so finally, on a day like today, you want to be able to, you know, there's great anticipation that that the prosecutor is going to stand up and, and deliver, you know, this closing argument that is going to put everything that you have heard in, in context and relate it to the jury in one big final, um, you know, one big final argument for them all to understand. And so there's there's a lot of heaviness and, and anticipation. There's, there's the gravity of it all too. I mean, up until now, you know, you kind of get caught up in the, I don't know, kind of get caught up into the day-to-day -day sort of gossipy noted, um, parts of some of the trial, you know, what she's wearing, what somebody's doing, this is and that's. And you, sometimes you kind of lose the sense of what we're here for. And so when they walk in today and you're delivering a closing argument on a murder case that involves, you know, three individuals, two of them are children, um, the, the gravity of that is so much more real. And, and, you, and you remind the jury why they're there and, and how much 
they need to care and why we care as a community um, to see justice. And it just really comes together on a day, on closing argument day. And I think everybody knows that because, like I said, I think you get these long trials, you kind of get caught up in some of the, the gossip and the this is and that's of who's wearing what and what's happening here and there and um, personalities in the courtroom. And, and today they finally bring it together and really, uh, really need to bring it home. And there, there's a lot of anticipation for that. And that is a, a fantastic point. And there's a lot of uh, gravity in this decision. Um, the jurors are literally deciding the fate of a person's life. Um, so uh, I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, meanwhile, uh, Larry Woodcock, of course, JJ's uh, grandpa, uh, he walked into the courthouse today and he was playing a song on an iPad and there's video of it, uh, you know, on Twitter and all that. He was playing We Will Rock You. And he told uh, the media that that is JJ's song. And he was kind of like strutting to it. Uh, he seemed to be in a very good mood. He was passing out lifesavers from a big red bowl. And he was uh, heard saying, y'all pass those down to the ladies over there. And a woman behind uh, this court reporter said, how are you doing, Larry? And he said, I am doing great. So uh, obviously a, a huge day for the families as well. Uh, Tara, to you, Stephanie Ellis says, weakest defense team I've ever seen in my entire life, to be honest. And I fought a lot of trials from start to finish. Um, you know, I know you live in that state. I don't want you to um, be ostracized. But uh, what do you think? I mean, it was sort of kind of sort of weak, don't you think? Yeah, I think, um, you know, it's it is a circumstantial case. There's certainly areas where um, defense attorney, any defense attorney could poke holes and provide alternate explanations that would be or could be reasonable here. Um, you know, I, I am surprised by uh, the strategy, but what we also don't know is how much of that strategy uh, was being driven by Lori. Um, you know, she is the client. And so uh, if she is telling her attorneys and the attorneys ultimately do have strategic control over the case, um, but if their client is sitting and, you know, saying over and over again, don't do this, don't, you know, don't throw chat under the bus, don't, talk about Alex in this way or that way, they they can be limited in the defense that they present. Now, um, surprisingly, uh, they waited until closing argument and did end up throwing Chad under the bus. Um, and, and that is surprising because that wasn't really the theme or the strategy that came out in their defense uh, at all throughout this case. But um, you know, I, I, uh, it's easy to kind of Monday morning quarterback, uh, decisions when, when you're on this side of it and not in the middle and you don't know the ins and outs of that relationship between, uh, defense and Lori, but I, I would have wished for a little bit more. So. Well put, well put, uh, you ran for political office and it was very well put, Tara. Laura, she'll be governor of Idaho, I guarantee you, one day. Uh, Laura Waldy, hi, Joel, best guest, and of course, the best, uh, the great STS nation. I have butterflies awaiting this verdict. Uh, oh, pretty please, don't let it be another Casey Anthony situation. Josh Ritter, that is followed up by uh, Rhonda, who says, does it make it easier for an appeal since there was no defense? Uh, what say you? No, not really. In fact, uh, oftentimes the more the defense does, the more appellate issues they can create. If they're making objections and, and preserving those arguments, then they're going to give the uh, Court of Appeals something to take a look at. But if they're 
sitting there kind of on their hands. And I'm not saying this defense was doing that, but they were not, you know, lodging a bunch of objections and filing a bunch of motions. Um, then some of those issues can be viewed as waived if they try to raise those later on on appeal. And it, I think where the, the question was kind of going is, can a defense be so bad that that alone creates an appealable issue? And what they're talking about is ineffective assistance of counsel is an argument that can be made on appeal if you feel that just your attorney dropped the ball so drastically that you weren't even afforded a proper defense. That is a real outside chance. It's kind of an argument that's thrown into almost every appeal because they just want to try to throw everything out the wall to see what sticks. But it, it's a real outside um, uh, slim argument to make because you really have to show that somehow the defense missed some completely obvious evidence or witness or something that they should have done that they did not do that um, that so handicapped your defense that you weren't even given effective uh, counsel. And so to answer the question in a long-winded way, no, just because they sat on their hands uh, or maybe have been viewed to have sat on their hands does not necessarily mean they're giving themselves a better chance at appeal. Uh, Tali, who is watching us in Israel, where there are rockets raining down, so stay safe, Tali. Uh, Hey, everyone, I hope this storm, that is a... uh, a euphemism for Chad's manhood, as we found out. Uh, hopefully this storm will be over soon. This verdict watch is stressing me out. Um, Lisa Daddio, I've asked so many guests this. I'm curious, why um, is someone like Tali all the way in Israel, and I've had people all over the world literally reach out, why are people so invested in this? Um, a lot of people bark back at me and said it's because we want justice. But is there also a sense of drama, intrigue, uh, what goes on in the mind of these people? What What is your take? So let's go back to decades of crime shows that were on TV and the fascination. And here we are. I mean, I grew up on police shows and crime shows in the 70s and 80s. And here we are you know, 2023 and some of the longest running and most popular shows on there involve crime. And I'm not even talking about the real crime stuff, you know, that's on um, other networks, right? Not the major ones that are all, you know, actors and actresses. But, you know, there's there's always been the fascination with who done it. Uh, going back to even Sherlock Holmes and, and all of that, there's the intrigue on, on the why. Um, when you have something like this case, and, and one of your viewers brought up Casey Anthony, which still, you know, uh, obviously uh, is concerning for a lot of us in the field, and we all have personal beliefs on it. It's the whole justice thing. Are they going to get justice? And how can somebody do something so horrific to another human being? And yes, they want justice in so many ways, but for as many people that are happy if the verdict is guilty, there are going to be a large portion of people that aren't going to be happy and say that, you know, it should have been not guilty because of A, B, C, or D. And you're going to have those individuals that are sympathizers um, that are going to feel horrible for her if she's found guilty. And those haters that will come out because, she is possibly found not guilty. So it's a weird phenomenon that's been around for decades about these types of cases. Yeah, and it's, I think it's only getting stronger. Uh, Gene Fisher, to you, um, 
from Laura P. Does conspiracy hold the same punishment as murder in Idaho? And can you also, uh, Judge Boyce began with, we hear it all the time. He began with jury instruction number four. The defendant is presumed to be innocent and the state has the burden to prove her guilty. Uh, the state must prove the alleged crime beyond a reasonable doubt. Uh, what does that really mean? And if you could answer this first question first. Uh, conspiracy to commit murder is the same punishment as as the crime um, as murder. Um, it would be the same as conspiracy to commit any crime that is carries the same punishment as the underlying crime for which the conspiracy was for. So um, it's the same punishment um, as, as murder itself. Um, and, you know, when it comes to, you know, what does, what does reasonable doubt mean? You know, that is the, that is the prosecutor's uh, big, you know, is that's the prosecutor's biggest argument and greatest challenge to a jury is to try and get them to understand what does um, beyond a reasonable doubt mean? Um, you know, sometimes we hear, you know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, and that's that's not it, right? Um, beyond a reasonable doubt um, is when we talk to jurors about that. We talk about <clears throat> we, we we talk about a doubt that um, sometimes they talk about a doubt that uh, you know, that you would hesitate on in the most important decisions of your life. Um, so, I mean, there's different ways of going about proving reasonable doubt. For me. I just really like to pull all the elements out of each of each event of each crime um, and literally be able to check it off in front of the jury about how the state was able to prove each and every element um, without keep going over what is reasonable doubt or what isn't um, because it's just, it's, it's an awkward word. And instead, you know, we pull out the elements and we literally go through that, you know, she's been identified, the date's been identified, the state of, it's in the state of Idaho, the child's been identified. And then we talk about whether it's a conspiracy. Um, for instance, in these cases, you know, it's important to lay out for the jury that a conspiracy doesn't require the actual act to have completely occurred. It just is a it's a conspiracy between two, at least two people, and that at least one overt act must have been accomplished. Um, and you literally check that off in front of a jury. In this instance, there were many, many overt acts that I think the prosecution were able to check off. Um, and you literally can check those off in front of the jury as far as what the elements are. And that's how I go about um you're proving uh, reasonable doubt. The rest of it is argument about why and motive and those sorts of things. But I think you just go through and check off each element so that the jury understands um, you know, what has been proven to them and, and what is left to decide. This, you know, this is kind of a whodunit case. Um, I mean, it's not a, it's not a traditional whodunit in that it's not a boogeyman. Um, I mean, we, nobody thinks it's that. Um, and even the defense doesn't think it's a, you know, we don't know what happened to these kids or we, I mean, they all now think Chad did it. Um, and so <clears throat> proving your elements in this instance really is a matter of, of checking off the elemental the, uh, elements of each case, of, of each criminal case. I mean, the counts in there and, and, and showing the jury, um, you know, that, that you can check them off and prove them. It's not, um, it's more about that than trying to describe what is or isn't reasonable doubt. I'm not sure I answered that exactly the way I intended to, but maybe Josh can help. But that's where I'm going. That uh, sounded good to me. Um, I'm going I'm to get to Josh in one sec. But uh, someone just asked, where is Lori right now? And she's uh, 
in her jail cell, as far as I know, or a holding cell. Um, but someone is also asking, do you think she's nervous? Lisa, daddy, I'm going to go back to you because you're the uh, expert on criminals. Uh, people have described her as a psychopath and narcissist. Um, do you think she's sitting in there worried the way a normal human being would be worried, uh, nibbling on her fingernails? Or is this just, uh, does she believe in her heart of hearts that um, she's going to, you know, get off on these charges? I, my, I personally don't think she's nervous at all um, for a lot of the characteristics that you mentioned. And so I think that she probably thinks due to her personality type that she's going to get off and there's just no way. And sometimes, you know, um, depending on a lot of different things, they actually believe that they are innocent or there was a justification for why they did what they did. So I don't think that she's nervous. Um, I think she's just like, you know, whatever happens, happens. And, you know, I'll, I'll take what the jury says or doesn't say. And, you know, if she's innocent uh, or found not guilty, then, you know, we'll, we'll have to obviously deal with that. But if she's found guilty, I'm sure she's going to claim her innocence. So we've seen that before too. So it's really, it's an odd thing to witness when someone is charged with these types of crimes, their reaction to it typically, and go back to previous trials that, um, were high profile. And I, I say this is high profile because we have people throughout the world that are watching this case. And so, you know, it, it's one of those that there's such a huge following throughout the world about it that, you know, she is also probably enamored by the notoriety of it, which is just crazy um, to me. And that's why some people are, are thrilled there are no cameras and why some people are really upset that there are no cameras. Um, Laura Waldy, yay, Joshua and Tara here, two of my favorite guests, followed by Love Joshua Ritter, yay. So he's got he's got his fan club here, followed by Stephanie Ella. This has become an anthem for our show, Buzz Off Brad. Um, and then Jennifer in Jersey has got my uh, backup for you, Joel, to your show. She's talking about my intros. Julie says, no Brads allowed. Um, and look, we've got Brazil in the house today. Haven't seen that in a while. So Brazil is here. And... Uh, it is true. Lisa Daddio is right. It is a uh, trial that has the entire world engaged. Uh, Tara, to you. So let's let's move into breaking down the closing arguments on on the part of both the state and the defense. I'll kind of go back and forth here. Uh, Rob Wood, he is the Madison County prosecuting attorney. He presented the closing arguments today, uh, Tara, and he started the way they opened the trial uh, in opening statements. He said that Money, power, and sex. Those were the three uh, words we heard in the beginning. Beginning in October 2018, Lori Vallow and Chad Daybell set in motion uh, events along the way. Uh, it included her brother, Alex Cox, to participate in a conspiracy unencumbered and free of obstacles. This plan was driven by Lori Vallow's desire for and use of money, power, and sex. And this plan must end today in the verdicts you render in this trial. Uh, what about that for an opening salvo in the closing arguments to grab the jury's attention? Is it normal for them to kind of go full circle here? Yeah, absolutely. A good a good attorney is going to have a theme that runs throughout the entire case from start to finish. Um, you don't you don't have to have a theme, but you know, as as humans, it's natural for us 
in these types of situations to want the answer to the question of why. And the question of why is the motive in a case. And so they started off really strong uh, and very clear about the motive here, which was, you know, sex, money, and power. And then, you know, they built this kind of house brick by brick with all the circumstantial evidence. And at the end, that's their opportunity to wrap a bow around it and to bring it back and say, you know, I told you in the beginning, this was about sex, money, and power. I told you the evidence was going to show that. Here, I'm reminding you again that it was about sex, money, and power now. And then they, they had a PowerPoint presentation where they went through and they had slides that said, you know, sex, and here's what it is. And here's how the evidence kind of ties up and relates and money and power in the same thing. And so um, I think that was very persuasive. I think that was a, a well done um, kind of a full circle moment for the prosecution. I didn't want to reveal this secret, but Ritter and I actually text every day about our clothes. So we did. Uh, no, we didn't. We had no idea. I think every guy in America has the same shirt, right, Josh? Even when I'm not coming on the show, I wear the same shirt as you. <laughs> I, I love to hear that. All right. So on to the defense. We'll go back and forth between the defense and the state. Um, Jim Archibald, uh, the lead uh, defense counsel, he started off Josh Ritter by uh, thanking everyone for their service, saying that you have a tough job. Uh, and we talked about this almost seven weeks ago when we first met. And he says this case has been difficult. We're getting close to the end. Uh, thank you so much for being patient. Uh, we respect the jobs you do. So he's kind of kissing up to the jury, but then uh, got into it saying, uh, who is Lori Vallow? What happened? Where did it happen? When did it happen? Why did it happen? That's what you've been asked to figure out. That's what you need to be convinced of beyond a reasonable doubt and says, Lori uh, was born in California. She turns 50 next month. She got married right out of high school. She got divorced. She went to beauty school. Uh, she got married and divorced again. And she worked very hard as a single mother. Obviously, his strategy is to try to humanize her. In a few moments from what I just read, he starts to tear into Chad Daybell and throws him under the bus, which is obviously what their only defense would have been. And I would have, I thought it would have been stronger against Alex, but what about this way to open it? I mean, he's got very little to work with, but he's trying to turn her into a human being here. Yeah. And I think that's exactly what it is, is he's got very little to work with. So, you know, butter up the jury a little bit if you can and, and, and explain to them how difficult their job is. Last thing you want them thinking is that this is a really simple case and that it's a slam dunk. You want them going back into that jury room convinced of the idea that, no, this is incredibly complex and, you know, we're going to really have to sit here and think about things because um, the prosecution's job, conversely, is to say, no, we, we laid this out for you step by step. And now in closing arguments, I've connected all the dots for you. And this should be relatively uh, simple for you to arrive at a conclusion here. So, yeah, I mean, he's, you know, he's, he's going to have to to play into that realm of reasonable doubt as to, you know, confusion, right? Where, where was she? What was she doing? What were her specific actions? What, what steps can you name the steps she actually took in the furtherance of this conspiracy? And if she's got, you know, and, and again, you got to think about this. He only needs one or two of them. So if he's got one or two jurors back there asking these types of questions who aren't fully convinced about her actual involvement, aside from her knowledge after the fact, um, they they you know that's I think the best he can shoot for. I'm not 
again, I'm not trying to say that's what's going to happen or that that was all that convincing, but that's kind of what he was left with. And uh, defense attorneys, I have learned from doing the show, love to say it only takes one. And uh, we'll see. I think it's going to be hard to get that one. Salty Cowgirl. Hello, STS Nation and best guest ever and ever and ever from Wyoming. About to fall off the edge of my seat to Lisa Daddio's point that everyone is, uh, you know, nervous about this. Uh, retired nurse. Hey, STS Nation, even though they said D, that's OK. I'll forgive them. I think uh, Rob Wood's closing argument was amazing. And Stephanie, I love Josh Ritter. I've been following him for years. What is not to love about Josh Ritter? Uh, Catherine Regier from Hawaii. Tara just as smart as she is beautiful. Aloha to uh, Catherine. Gene Fisher, uh, back to you. Um, so right out of the gates, the state, after talking about reasonable doubt, uh, puts up a photo of Ty Lee and says, uh, Rob Wood says, and I quote, she was burned and buried in Chad Daybell's backyard. What was left of her body, they dumped in a green bucket and buried in a pet cemetery on a top uh, on top of a piece of her skull. Kylie was gone and buried and out of the way, but Lori Vallow kept collecting Kylie's money. I mean, that is hard to even listen to. Uh, the reporters in there said it was brutal to see these photos. Um, is this uh, a strategy of shock value to show the jurors what a despicable act this was? Yeah, I don't, I don't, I wouldn't call it shock value. I would, I would say it's a punctuation of just how serious this crime was, how, how um, malicious and, and um, just, you know, how aberrant the whole, the whole murder was. I, I think that, you know, they have to be able to punctuate that with the jury on a murder or a conspiracy to commit murder. Right? They talk about things like malice of forethought and a malignant heart. Um, and those are all things that the jurors are getting instructions about. And what better way to describe a malignant heart than to be able to describe the way in which the, this body was found, this, you know, 17 year old, um, you know, child and, and, and how her body was, was, mutilated um, and left. Um, uh, I think there's just no better way to punctuate that. And, and, and they did the same and they, you know, they walked through for the next, for the next two, they did the same with JJ as, as they did uh, talking about um, Tammy. Hers obviously was a little bit different, but you know, they, they punctuated the, the, you know, the, the, the malice um, and the, um, and just the the horrible nature of uh, the deliberate um, the deliberate nature in which these murders were were uh, were committed. So I I think it really brings home to the jury that seriousness. And when you talked earlier about you know how quiet was there today, it was palpably different. I mean that's that's the kind of thing I'm talking about. I mean, everybody's expecting to to hear that that prosecutors stand up and really deliver that impassioned um, last closing argument. And, and he had a lot to work with, um, with these, with these three victims and how they were found and the nature in which their, their bodies were destroyed. Um, you know, calling, you know, calling it, you know, with Tylee, you know, that she was, you know, trash garbage and trash and just, um, just, yeah, really punctuating it. So I think, I think that it was very, very powerful. And Jean, um, 
Elise Witt, will the jury deliberate over the weekend on these high-profile cases in Ada County? Do they generally go home for the weekend? If they don't reach a verdict tomorrow, will they stay Saturday and Sunday? Uh, well, in my experience, that they would have the weekend off. Um, it may be that the judge, that this judge, will ask them whether or not they are willing to stay on Saturday. Uh, they definitely will not deliberate on Sunday. Um, and um, the judge, but the judge may ask them if they're if they're wanting to. Otherwise, you know, if there's even a hesitation, they'll they'll be sent home for the weekend if they don't have a verdict by tomorrow night. Um, and as far as hours, how long they will let them go, you know, different judges have different practices as far as um, how long they're willing to let a jury work. Um, you know, this has been a long case with a lot of information. Today was a graphic day, a powerful day. Um, and, and I, you know, they're, they're, these folks are tired. Um, and it may, I wouldn't be surprised if, if, um, if they're not making, you know, if they're not indicating a significant, um, um, decisions or, uh, that they're making a lot of movement today that he wouldn't let them go, uh, relatively early tonight, uh, and bring them back tomorrow arrested and, and really be able to work at it tomorrow. Uh, and Lisa, so we're talking about these photos of the kids, also of Tammy Daybell and uh, Ty Lee. With Ty Lee was charred, literally charred and burned. Um, how difficult as an investigator is it to work these cases with children? Everyone I've talked to says it's the hardest thing you can do. Um, do images like this stick with you for a lifetime? As, and you're also a mom on top of it. So just speak to the... Uh, you know, the difficulty in these sorts of cases for you as an yeah. investigator. And, and they do. Um, you know, even before I was a mom, I had a horrific uh, child abuse murder case. Um, and to this day now, it's been a long time. Those images and everything about that case, I can tell you everything. Um, and, and so as an investigator, when... It's so horrific. And whether it's a child, ch children and elderly always hit us the hardest. And not that, you know, adults that aren't either one of those, but I think it has to do with the helplessness of it. Uh, they're so vulnerable, um, you know, but any person that is murdered the way that these three victims were haunt the investigators and they'll never forget it. And, you know, to the jurors uh, that saw those images repeatedly throughout this trial, they're never going to forget it either. Um, and, and so you deal with all this type of secondary trauma from seeing the images and then just thinking about it and reliving it as an investigator. You can't let that interfere um, and get in the way of your investigations. You don't want to be biased and make mistakes that can cause a not guilty verdict. Um, so, you know, it, it's one of those things that now we were really proactive in, uh, debriefing as investigators and getting into, um, mental health and, and talking about counseling and going to talk to people after cases like this that are just horrific. Uh, Tara. So the next photo, as Jean alluded to was, uh, JJ uh seven years old and uh rob wood says and i quote here jj's voice was silenced forever by a strip of duct tape placed across his mouth a white plastic bag was placed over his head where it was secured tightly with duct tape wrapped around and around from his forehead to his neck 
The evidence says he struggled and will never know how long he fought before they wrapped tape around his wrists and ankles. He stopped breathing, his heart stopped beating, and he died. It was a brutal, horrific murder of a seven-year-old boy with special needs. I mean, it is rough. It's hard for me to read that because I've got a boy that's turning four on Sunday um, and two daughters, not to mention. Uh, But it's heavy stuff. Um, Again, I guess kind of what I asked Gene, uh, the the state is leaving no stone unturned with, with imagery. You know, in news, you learn, don't use cliches. Don't say it's a mother's worst nightmare, which you hear on the news, by the way, every night. Don't ever use that. That's what you're taught by good uh, news directors. Instead, you describe how the child was uh, killed uh, and the reality of it. And that's what the state is doing here. Is it effective? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think it's really effective. I mean, I, number one, doing what Jean had talked about initially, which is just just you know, the gravity of the situation, the seriousness of the charges that, you know, that uh, Lori is facing. But also there's another reason that, you know, they're bringing this up and and they have to remind the jury because there's been so much evidence, especially in a case like this, there's been so much evidence presented to them so far. They need to start talking about that physical evidence again and reminding them and connecting that physical evidence to the elements of the crime that they're trying to prove. And in this particular, you know, case we're talking about a conspiracy and we're talking about, you know, some good stuff as it relates to Chad and to Alex and obviously defense through um Chad under the bus at, in the closing arguments, but um as the prosecution said many times during their closing argument uh and asked the rhetorical question, what ties Alex you know, to Chad, what Chad ties Chad to Alex, it's Lori. And so when they're, when they're describing like how JJ, um, you know, had the duct tape around uh, his neck that was, you know, around the plastic bag on his head and, and how he had his um, wrists bound, it goes back to their theory of, and the connection between Lori and, you know, the crime as well. As you recall, Lori's hair was on a piece of duct tape. Um, that and that was the duct tape around JJ's body. There's a connection there. You know the fact that his wrists were bound. Um, you know, and some of the other DNA evidence as well. So it's graphic and it is effective because it's reminding everybody like here there are real victims here. You know, don't don't forget that. But it's also effective in the sense of it is the state's ultimate burden and duty to tie this all together and convince these jurors that this person who's standing trial is the one who committed the crime. Well put. Uh, Brennell, she did not spell defense wrong. She has that Canadian flag. That's how they spell it in that country. The defense, in my opinion, made Chad look like a complete idiot, in which he is. But in doing so, he also made Lori look like one as well by following Chad. Uh, keep that in mind, Josh, because I'm about to read to you the next part of the defense closings. Uh, Jim Archibald says, who is Chad Daybell? He asked them. Uh, Lori read some of his books and. Jim Archibald explains all about the religious teachings, the 144,000 followers, evil spirits, light and dark ratings, zombies, Jesus being in the temple. Uh, And he said quite a remarkable change in Lori from people who knew her. What the heck is going on? How can this be? And he goes on to say, one year after meeting Chad, four people are dead. Archibald reminds the jurors they should, should not consider 
Charles' death in this case, as Lori is not facing charges here in Idaho for his death. It is an obvious ploy to throw Chad Daybell uh, right under the proverbial bus. Is he doing an effective job by from what I just read to you to try to make that happen in the minds of the jurors? No, I mean, I, I, I don't find that all that effective. Um, I, 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 I'm shocked kind of, and I, and I agree with what Tara said earlier that, you know, we don't know all the inner workings of her defense team and what things may have been off limits and where they may have been getting pushback from their client. But I, but I am shocked that more of this case didn't sound like the comments that you just read there from the, from the closing that to me, you know, to me, I thought they were going to paint her as one of his victims, one of Chad's victims, that Chad took the life of his wife, took the life of these two innocent children, and he he robbed this poor woman of her motherhood by, you know, convincing her of all of this kind of religious nonsense. And she just followed him because she's hapless and, and innocent and everything else. And I really thought that was going to be the theme that we were going to be hearing throughout the case. And we didn't, it didn't kind of materialize during the case and during their cross-examination. And then it just, it seemed as though he, he limped into it a bit in closing argument. But to me, that was, if they're going to go with any defense beyond just saying the people didn't reach their burden, if they were going to present the jurors with some alternative to her having participated in these murders, and the obvious candidate would have been Chad, and you you would have thought you would have heard more about that. Um, so I don't know if that was convincing. I, I didn't find it convincing. Uh, Lisa Daddio. So uh, court reporters, uh, and I mean news reporters, uh, said that the jurors during these closings were taking copious notes. Um, they were looking at uh, Rob Wood, the uh, lead prosecutor here, uh, as he was giving his argument, they were looking at uh, Lori back at the uh, uh, counselor delivering the closing arguments. Um, is there any way to read a jury? And uh, I mean, you know, I know you've been in the courtroom many times, not as a lawyer, but, you know, to provide expert testimony. What kind of burden is it on these jurors um, to possibly remand someone to state prison for the rest of their lives? I mean, it's pretty heavy. Oh, yeah, of course it's heavy. Um, and, and, you know, this case, like so many, they're, they're tasked with theoretically sitting somebody away for the rest of their lives and they have to live with that decision. Uh, I think what helps justify it, um, obviously, is the horrific nature of the crimes. And most people are visual, meaning that as they're describing um, the bodies, as they're describing the scenes, and obviously they're seeing the images, they're also, they meaning the jury is also visualizing it. And even as you were saying it to me, I immediately started visualizing it and I had goosebumps everywhere and it got a little nauseous. Why? Because I can see it. And so that makes it easier if I was sitting on a jury, which of course I never would be on a jury for a lot of reasons, but you know, for the jury to find guilt because they have to find blame for the horrific nature of this case. And so I think that helps justify their verdict, even though they're tasked with, you know, proof beyond a reasonable doubt and, and all that legal stuff. 
Um, taking notes isn't surprising. It's been a long journey and the brain can only retain so much. And everybody's uh, perception of something or what they heard could be different than somebody else's. So, you know, I think it's great that they're writing things down. It helps their memory as they're in uh, deliberations. And, you know, when I've testified, I'm always looking at the jury. You know, the attorney could be here asking me a question and I'm looking at the jury box uh, and I'm, I'm reading what they're doing. You know, are they receptive to what I'm saying? You know, what type of affect do they have? And then I, you know, for me as a, a person, you know, an observe, you know, someone who is keen to observations, I'm looking at that as well um, to see if there's a connection made. And, and I think they are too with the attorney and even Lori, uh, seeing what her reaction to what he, the prosecutor is saying is huge. Uh, just a very quick programming note, just a reminder in about 17 minutes, I have to hop off and uh, we'll wrap the show at about an hour and 15 minutes today because Carm is a big celebrity now and she has to do court TV and I will be on with her. Um, but if we do reach a verdict and the chief marketing officer is going to probably hate me for this, but I'm going to try to come back on a little later and I might even ask some of these guys to join me if we do get a verdict around like, you know, 10 Eastern time or something. Uh, to take your questions in a very freestyle format. So you got to follow me, Twitter at Podcast STS, and I'll put all that info out as soon as I know it myself. KCL, who I would hire as a news reporter if I was a news director, a job I would never want. Joel, best guest in true crime, Gigi, the one and only Gigi McKelvey of Pretty Lies and Alibis, a friend of the show. She said the jurors asked for dinner to be brought in, and they are staying late tonight. She believes this will be a quick verdict. Tara, uh, jurors, people in general like to eat. Is that a sign you think that we're going to hear something uh, tonight? No, no, I don't think so. Uh, they, you know, it's not unusual. It's a, a case ends, even if it ends mid-morning, you know, lunch is brought in or dinner is brought in. Um, generally what happens is they will eat and continue to deliberate. But unfortunately, uh, we can't read the... Uh, pizza tea leaves and say that that means we're going to get a verdict soon so i, lo I love these i love sts nation like a salty cowgirl joel tell anyone who tells you how to run your show that their comment is getting the algorithm chugging that is true <laughs> that is true um to you gene fisher uh so the state kind of uh, switched over after showing these very grisly photos um they also say by the way that uh Chad and Lori had a move to that. It was a, a very deliberate move to Rexburg, Idaho. He says they couldn't kill the kids in Arizona where they had friends and family moving to Rexburg. Idaho was the catalyst for these murders. They had a high Ty Lee and JJ. They had to go somewhere. Nobody knew them moving to Rexburg. Uh, Rob Wood says was a catalyst for these murders. And then Alex followed. And then he gets into overt acts uh, he says, overt acts uh, Lori used to further conspiracy and grand theft. She never reported her kids missing. She changed bank accounts to get Social Security benefits from her kids, burner phones, etc. And Rob says, all these steps were taken to further their conspiracy. What are uh, these overt acts? It's a legal term, but uh, what does it mean in English? Well, I mean, an overt act really is um, any act that is done towards the commission of that crime. So as a conspiracy, in a conspiracy case, 
you just have to have at least two people and they have to conspire together in order to commit a crime, in this case, murder. And um, whether that uh, whether the murder is actually um, actually happens or not, you can still be convicted of a conspiracy. So the so an overt act, you know, might mean that they uh, that they have proven that they um, had conversation that they agreed to the murder of the children and that they agreed to the murder of Tammy Daybell, that um, they may have put out enough evidence to show that, you know, they called uh, Alex in to assist um, and that she sent JJ away or um, yeah, JJ away with Alex uh, the last day that he was seen. They were talking about texts uh, and connecting that, that, that his, uh, you know, he'd gotten down to a, a two in the zombie meter and, and you know, whether or not uh, he w- would hit zero or not, they, t- they t- you know, she was having conversations about that. Um, anything that, so an overt act is, is any act in the furtherance of the crime, of the crime of which they are intending to, to uh, commit. Um, and I think that it can be, um, you know, any one of those overt accidents that they have to uh, accomplish. Um, they don't have to be present. I'm, in addition to that, I am certain that they that they received an instruction on defining on what a principle um, of, in a murder is uh, because of the aiding and abetting. Um, you, in order to be a principle in the murder, we also have aiding and abetting, and, and it doesn't require a person to be present when when a murder is committed, as long as that person um, either contrived, compelled, coerced uh, somebody else to commit to commit uh, a murder as well. So in this instance, they you know they have that instruction with them as well that Lori Velo uh, contrived um, or compelled uh, or coerced somebody uh, to commit these acts as well. So there's lots of different routes and avenues for this jury, which makes it. Con- could make it more confusing for them, um, but I do think that they you know, they have a lot to look at as far as the evidence. And we are all getting a free legal education, courtesy of Jean, of Jean Fisher, who's been studying this uh, basically her entire life. For those who are interested, Mother's Day is in March. We missed it in Ireland. However, it is May 14th in Holland, so uh, still time there. And speaking of that, I've got to get something for my mom. Uh, Mother's Day is March in the UK. Lorna uh, following up there. Um, to you, Josh Ritter with the beautiful shirt. Um, he flipped the script here. He said it wasn't Lori who needed money. He says he res- he respects uh, the state's argument that this is about money, sex, and power. But he says Charles Vallow is making between four and $500,000 a year. He says that Lori was receiving far less in Social Security money after Charles' death. So what is the point of the death? And uh, then moves uh, she moves on to Chad. Uh, he moves on to talking about Chad and says uh, he can't sell enough stupid books about the end of the world as Tammy has to support him. So Lori wanted to ditch Charles, who makes $400,000 to $500,000 a year, and go to Chad, who makes $30,000 a year, and she wanted to do that for money, he asks. Um, it's an interesting argument. I mean, if I was a juror, I would say to myself, number one, this guy is so dopey just when you look at him. But then you find out the ex-husband or the deceased husband, number four, was making a half a million dollars a year. This guy was making thirty grand. 
maybe it was about the money for Chad and not about Lori. Um, am I just a, a numbskull? Um, will the jurors see right through this? One, you're not a numbskull. No. <laughs> Uh, no, I, I think it's a fairly decent argument. I, I, again, I don't know how convincing it, it will be, but it, you know, any, especially when the prosecution puts out there a theory, um, where they didn't entirely need one, but they, they went ahead and decided that they were going to present this theory about money, power, and sex to the, to the jury. If you can start to chisel away at that as a defense attorney, um, you know, you're going to chisel away at their case and make it look as though what the prosecution promised to you, they didn't entirely deliver. And what they promised are not things that they exactly needed to deliver. Quite frankly, um, they needed to prove this crime and the motive for it isn't required, but they wanted to give that to jurors. And I understand why. But if you can attack that and poke holes in it, then it appears as though you're poking holes in the entire case. Um the other thing I think to keep in mind is that, you know, the defense attorneys, uh, they they live in the world of confusion. And so whatever kind of doubt and confusion and if they've got jurors back there who don't quite get things um, and those things are not even important to the case itself, but they just find themselves to be confused, that might be enough to kind of create some discord amongst the jurors. And that's what a defense attorney wants too, is he doesn't want a bunch of people who agree with each other. He wants people who are maybe, uh, you know, back there arguing about the little things that don't seem to matter all that much. So uh, I, I remember when I was a prosecutor that I, I would, I would, I would vaudeer on this, that the, the idea that you're going to go back into the jury room and I'm not going to have answered every possible question in your mind. You're going to have this is a story about life, and there's going to be some mysteries that you're going to have when you go back into the jury room. But those mysteries aren't going to be about the elements of this case. But people are people, and they if they find something that they don't understand, and if you're the defense attorney and you've got them thinking about that rather than about the two poor children who are buried in the ground, then I think that you're halfway to doing your job. Uh, Irish bro, a new viewer from Ireland. Glad to have you. Tracy Shaw. I woke up at 5 a.m. South Australian time to watch this. You guys are doing a great job. Thank you. I wouldn't do that for my own show. So thank you, Tracy. I'm uh, I'm not a morning. I'm a notorious night owl. I stay up late every night and then scramble every day. Uh, that is uh, Joel's MO for all of you who want to know. Um Tara Malik, uh, Chad convinced her she's a goddess. Uh, Jim Archibald goes on here, the defense. In the year Chad convinced her she was a goddess, how many converts did Lori have? He says zero, a big fat zero. How many converts did Chad have? I count six, Melanie, Audrey, etc. he says. This great cause of saving the world and gathering up the 144,000, Chad got six and Lori got zero, and to that other viewers point, by the way, it kind of makes Lori look like a, uh, ineffective and a dope because she can't even get followers. But anyway, Chad's racking up the followers. Jim Archibald, Archibald says, do some simple math. Chad has 143,994 people left to gather before Jesus come at the rate of six people a year. That will take Chad 24,000 years to get this army assembled. The math is ridiculous. And then Jim Archibald goes on to say, Hey, people have sex outside of marriage every day. Don't look at my client. Uh, he said that people were glaring at his client, by the way, throughout the trial. 
Um, I don't know. He starts to lose me here. Is this, um, is he grasping at straws with these arguments? Yes. <laughs> I mean, I, it doesn't, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me either. I, I was reviewing the, you know, kind of the play by play on the closing arguments. And I was like, I don't, I don't know where he's going with this. I, you know, he's, I think Josh has a good point and he's right. It's, you know, if as a defensive attorney, you can go in and, and I call it muddying the waters. If you can muddy the waters enough and confuse the jurors, um, that's helpful for defense. Uh, you know, the prosecution came in with a PowerPoint. They had everything uh, itemized on these slides. They had everything in categories. And the defense comes in and says, well, what about this? And starts going to, you know, stern things up. And, um, you know, there there is a point, you know, a, a good point, which is, yeah, people have affairs all the time. That's a fact of life. But, but um, why it was not, in my opinion, effective of an argument is because he could have used that time on other things and other um, pieces of evidence that he could have poked holes in, uh, you know, because of the circumstantial nature of this case. And, and I don't think... Um, I don't think he did a great job, especially if the jury's glaring at his client. He's not reading the room real well. I mean, that's not a great strategy to come in and be like, don't glare. People have affairs. It's like, that's not going to, that's not helpful. So you're going to have to come up with something else. And instead, I think it would have been much more effective to come in and talk about, you know, the actual physical pieces of uh, evidence, maybe some of the DNA and provide alternate possibilities or explanations on some of those, you know, and, and really hammer on, you know, there's nothing in here that, you know, you can tie directly back to Lori, but just, just my opinion on it. So. And I have to wrap in just a couple minutes. Adam Bluefire says Lori's guilty as hell, pun intended. There's avalanches of circumstantial evidence plus actual physical evidence enough to convince any jury to convict with confidence. Lisa Daddio, one of those things, uh, perhaps the most uh, pivotal piece of evidence is, uh, is this hair that was found um, on the bag on the duct tape that uh, encased uh, JJ. Uh, Jim Archibald addressed that today, and he goes, "Is that a smoking gun? No, not at all. Why not? Because decomposition fluid was also in that bag. The pajamas were also in that bag. Kid socks were also in that bag. A kid's blanket was also in that bag. To say Lori is a killer because they found a found a piece of her hair on duct tape—that's not true. I hope uh, all of you who are mothers, I hope your hair is somewhere in your kids' pajamas, socks." or blanket, he says, um, any which way you slice it, it strikes me that that is still a damning piece of evidence. There's a one in 71 billion chance it was anyone else's but uh, Lori Vallow's. Uh, you're an investigator. How important is that singular hair? Well, so here's what we know about hairs and fibers, right? They're trace evidence. They're easily moved from one thing to another. Um, is it possible it was on something else and then got on the tape? And yeah, you know, I, I do think that's it. We know who it comes back to, but we also know how easy it is to have hair found on articles of clothing that aren't yours. Um, and, and so that is a little bit of a challenge. And again, you know, I keep thinking about the Casey Anthony case with what they had. And, and while some of us watching it were like, oh, she's guilty for a lot of other reasons, back to the whole circumstantial side of it, circumstantial cases that go to trial are difficult. It's They're difficult for the prosecutors. They're difficult for the investigators. And you just hope that, you know, uh, the jury 
can see through some of that. I've had convictions on murder cases that were all circumstantial. Um, and there's no doubt in my mind when we arrested the person that they did it. You know, investigators aren't going ahead and arresting people who didn't do crimes most of the time. I would never say all the time, even though I would like to think that uh, nobody would ever do that. But we know for a fact that that has happened in the past. So while it's damning because it's Lori's, I also think that it could be possible that that tape, that hair got on the tape because it was on something else that maybe were on, uh, that was on the victim. Uh, Belle Michelle, Jersey girl, where I hail from, not far from Lisa Daddio, became a YouTube member. Thank you. And then she added this, smash that like button, please. Please do it. Uh, I really appreciate that. As my kids say, it's the algorithm chugging. Um the uh, elephant in the room is the storm, uh, and I'll put this one on you, Josh Ritter. That is a euphemism for Chad's manhood. Uh, Jim Archibald did not stray away from it. Uh, at the very end, he says, if there's anything we've learned about a storm, you hide from a storm. You seek shelter from a storm. Lori spent her whole life protecting her children. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you again. Um, it's become sort of a laughing stock of the trial. Um, Josh Ritter, prosecutor of the year. Um, did he have to mention the storm since it's become kind of like uh, a running joke in this trial? And did he handle it well? And will there be a conviction? And how soon? <laughs> and 50 more questions, but I'll leave it at that. Uh, I probably could have done without reference to the storm. Um, <laughs> I think we all probably could have done without it. Um, I think there will be a conviction. Um, I'm, I'm not in the camp that it's going to come all that soon. And that's not because of the strength of the case, but you got to understand these people have been sitting there for five weeks now. That's a lot of evidence to go over. I mean, it, it, in my experience, jurors sometimes take a, an hour or two just getting to know each other and, and picking a four person and figuring out, okay, where are the exhibits and how do we fill out these jury forms? I mean, it's not, it's not just sitting back and taking a vote. Um, and I think that they realize the consequences of all of this. And I think they're going to meticulously go through a lot of it, even if they do feel convinced. Um, but having said all of that, Friday is tomorrow. And I know that people, if they feel convinced, want to get things done before the weekend. So um, I guess that hedges my bet either way and doesn't really answer your question. So I'll leave it at that. <laughs> uh, don't worry. That, that happens to me very often. Lisa Daddio, retired police lieutenant with the New Haven Police Department, uh, an excellent investigator. She is now a teacher uh, and teaches at the University of New Haven. Uh, to you, Lisa, will this be um, a conviction and how soon will we get the verdict? I'm going to say it's a conviction and I'm going to guess it's by tomorrow so that they can resume their lives come Saturday. Tara Malik, she's an Idaho licensed attorney practicing in state and federal court in business and commercial litigation in Boise. And uh, she has experience in both civil and criminal law. What's going to happen, Tara? You know the answer. I don't. I can't read the tea leaves. I mean, my, my, uh, my guess is that this this uh, jury has been, um, well, I know they've been very diligent throughout the trial. They've paid attention. I certainly haven't heard any anything about any of them nodding off. So I think that there's going to be some very intense discussions that are happening right now. Um, you know, I, I'm thinking it's going to be uh, late Friday, maybe Monday, early Monday 
uh, verdict would be my guess if I had to guess. And of course, last but not least, we we leave her because she's got the most experience in Ada County. It is Jean Fisher. She retired after 33 years of service at the Ada County Prosecutor's Office. She started her career uh, when she was about three years old. She was hanging out at the prosecutor's office, uh, and that's why she knows her stuff. Teresa's comment, prayers for the jury will respect their decision on how many charges they convict Lori on. Uh, at the end of the day, Jean, we have to respect uh, this is the judicial system. Do you think there will be a conviction and how soon? All right, this is going to throw you. I think they're going to have some convictions tomorrow afternoon but they may come down with uh, convictions on the conspiracy to commit murder and a hung jury on murder. Uh, they just may not say, they may just say, I, we just don't know who did it, but we're satisfied beyond a reasonable doubt that she was involved and there was a conspiracy and that's good enough for us. Um, and even though this weekend's not a holiday weekend, it is Mother's Day on Sunday. And uh, I think this jury will be ready to be done. Uh, so I'm, I'm saying a split verdict tomorrow afternoon. Before you send the hate mail, you send it to Jean Fisher at hatemail.com. Now, Jean knows the system really well. Uh, she makes a great point, and uh, we're going to see. Time will tell. Only the jurors know what's going on. Uh, there's 12 of them deliberating, and we will find out soon enough. Until then, love you, America. Love you, Boise. Love you, Connecticut. Love you, L.A. Love you, Australia, Ireland, Austria, all these other countries, Holland. Um, check out. Uh, Twitter. My Twitter handle is podcast STS at podcast STS. And I will try to put up uh, times and we might get back on the air later tonight because I'm a news junkie until then. Love you. Final seconds of the game, a chance to score and the chance has gone begging. If your business's commerce platform keeps missing the target on golden opportunities, get the MVP you deserve. Get Shopify. <coughs> Shopify is the commerce platform revolutionizing millions of businesses worldwide. Whether you're a garage entrepreneur or IPO ready, Shopify is the only tool that you need to start, run and grow your business without the struggle. Shopify puts you in control of every sales channel. So whether you're selling signed football boots from Shopify's in-person POS system or you're vending vintage shirts on Shopify's all-in-one e-commerce platform, you are covered. And once you've reached your audience, Shopify has the internet's best converting checkout to help you turn them from browsers to buyers. What I love about Shopify is how no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the US. And Shopify is truly a global force, powering Allbirds, Rothy's and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across over 170 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. This is Possibility, powered by Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash ranks, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com forward slash ranks to take your business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash ranks.